0: Thank you for joining us for this episode. Today we're joined by Dr. Ben Sullivan. And as many of you know, the Sullivan family has been uh, a huge, huge uh, contributor in the uh, world of dry eye. This uh, conversation originally was going to start off as just a conversation for me to learn more about dry eye, hyperosmolarity, its effect on the ocular surface, and uh, and, kind of clear up some misconceptions that I had, and uh, Ben and I decided to record it uh, on the off chance it would make a good podcast, and I really think there's some aspects of this That uh, cleared some things up for me and uh, really brought to light some good impact. So, uh, I I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. And uh, thank you, Ben, for joining us for this episode of The OI Show. Thank you for joining us again today. We're joined by uh, Dr. Ben Sullivan. It is uh, an honor, as always, to get to speak with you. And uh, Dr. Sullivan, you have this wide breadth of knowledge around uh, around eye care and around tears. And uh, you know, your father is in this world, but how did you get into it? And how did this entice you to be like, okay, I'm I'm going to go out and make a name for myself in the PhD world and understand this, like. What drove sure. you to, uh, to dig into eye care and tears and
1: science? <laughs> yeah, well, that's it's a great question. I mean, it really is integral to who I am. I grew up, as I said, with my father being uh, at the Scape and Zy Research Institute. And obviously, he's my hero in all of this. And I just wanted to hang out with my dad mostly. Yeah. And uh, it was a great way to do it. You know, getting in the lab when I was younger, and I learned a lot about um, assays, even at a young age. Uh, I remember uh, he had his pipette over and over again for half the summer just until we were repeatable enough and i couldn't believe this is what science is about <laughs> sitting there pipetting over and over again and actually it was one of those one of those summers i decided i wanted to be an engineer because i liked building things but i also kept coming back to it you know dry eye really is a family business with yeah. us you know obviously we work for the tearful monocular surface society my mother and sister Um, my sister's executive director of that. And, you know, we've been sort of all in on this for a long time. Yeah. You know, my father recognized early on that a lot of dry eye patients were more like second class citizens. They wouldn't really get, um, you know, uh, seen by doctors the same way as some other very legitimate issues, obviously. But because dry eye was so commonplace, uh, even 20, 30 years ago, uh, it was kind of pushed to the side Mm -hmm. and things have changed a lot, obviously. Uh, and also the demographics have changed in, in decades that we've been looking at this. It used to be very much a women's health issue right? And my father got into it because he's fundamentally uh, an endocrinologist, right? And Mm -hmm. his contributions in androgen deficiency came out of his background, um, you know, and he knows a lot about mucosal immunology. He did his thesis on the secretory IGA. And, uh, you know, I got into it because, you know, hearing about these things, I remember reading the papers when I, I was like six or seven, and my father had a stack of papers always on his desk, you know, and I'd try to I was—I never understood what an MRL LPR mouse was. You know, I tried to read it. I, was like, I don't get it. What does that mean? You know. And so it was always fascinating to me, um, just to sort of hang around and understand dry eye. Yeah. Uh, my thesis was actually on nanotechnology and cancer detection. Oh. And I kept getting dragged back in. You know. And yeah. like I said, he had had a drug that was licensed, uh, testosterone, 0.05 percent. By the way, works really well. If you ever, if you ever—not to get onto a jag—but the whole reason we got into this and I got into this was to try to support the idea that testosterone could help these people. And we wanted to show clinically uh, how that could be, um, you know, monitored in, in clinical trials. The, and the things haven't really changed. It's really difficult to get a dry eye drug approved, yeah. right? A lot of it has to do with the heterogeneity of, of the grouping. You know, dry eye is such a broad category. And if it's symptomatic dry that's the definition, they're almost guaranteed to fail. So a lot of the work that I've done uh, outside of my father's lab, the tier lab has been focused on this sort of idea of, how do you track people, you know, and, and effectively track people based on, uh, you know, therapeutic response? And what's the input side to the um, you know inclusion criteria that can maximize your your benefit for a clinical trial? Yeah. And it's been very difficult to get companies to change, right? right? Everybody still just uses standing and breakup time. And yes. invariably, they're going to fail the trial, you know. Um, there's a doctor that uh, I have a lot of respect for, Dr. Panzer. He's an OD in Houston. And uh, he took up using and prescribing testosterone to patients. And he said very clearly over and over again, it works fantastically well. He calls them his magic drops. Uh, and I've used them, and they work fantastically well. But they seem to only work on people that are hyperosmolar. And he says this over and over again. You know, why do you have a tear lab? Well, you got to see who actually has hyperosmolarity, right? And so what do I do with the number is always a question we get. Well, 0.05% testosterone, QID, seems to work amazingly well. But again, only in people that have hyperosmolarity. If they're not hyperosmolar, they don't feel a thing. Uh, he tells a story about people that come from Australia. Once, like it's a great story, actually. They heard about his magic drops and they flew from Sydney to see him. And uh, he tested, uh, he tested the, the husband and the wife, and his heart sank because the wife was like two eighty three, two eighty five, you know, something totally normal. He's like, ah, you flew all the way here. Let me test you again. Okay, two eighty totally normal. He was like, oh man, what are we gonna do? Like, you know, he was stressing out. Uh, and the husband was like three fifty, three forty. It was it was high. Mm-hmm. So he's like, and he always does this. He always puts a testosterone in one eye and then a, a placebo in the other. And then five minutes later, they can always tell that the eye that worked, you know, mm. it was in. And I've done this myself at home. Like, he gave me a prescription, and I and mean, when I'm having really bad dry eye days, it's one of the only things that helps. You know, wow. artificial tears help. And there's no question, especially if you're hyperosmolar, you know, hypotonic artificial tear, these types of things, a good HA drop, these things really do help. But you have to constantly take it and then you don't want to overdo it. There's a fine line. And as I'm sure as you've managed people, it's difficult to balance that, especially for more, more severe chronic patients. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. testosterone is no different. You know, some people are going to do a lot better on it than others.
0: Uh, yeah, testosterone
1: works basically for these hyperosmolar patients. Yeah. And So what Dr. Panzer found, these two people sitting in front of him, And literally he did the same thing, you know, and the husband was like, this is amazing. My left eye feels great. And he told, he told the wife, I'm sorry, this isn't going to work for you. You're not hyperosmolar." And she said, I've flown all the way from Australia. Just try it. He's like, okay, I'll try it. I just have to manage your expectations. It's not going to work. And lo and behold, you know, he always does one in one eye and does the other. And she chose the placebo Uh as the better draw, you know, and uh, he's told the story so many times, like I'm, you know, there's gotta be something to this. And, Unfortunately, we weren't able to get it across the finish line. And that's another yeah. whole story for another day sure. as to why testosterone is not on the market. But um, I still think that it works fantastically well. You can get it from you know, compounding pharmacies, obviously, and different states have different laws about how that works. And so mm-hmm. you obviously have to pay attention to that. But um, you know, we always thought, and I always thought 30 years ago, that we'd have 10, 15 drugs right now. I always thought that there would be many right. different things available on the market, and it has never materialized. Yeah. And I think one of the main reasons it hasn't materialized is that, um, A, I think people don't always understand the etiology of the disease. Right. Uh, you know, what really is the cause? And I also think the issue is downstream. How do you measure the change? Yeah. You know, dry trials are notoriously difficult. It's such a heterogeneous population. And as we're talking about etiology, if you're not treating the underlying disease, your drug isn't going to work. Right. And then you have a really broad signal. And if half the people have mean aggression, you have all these things that you're fighting, the effect size has to be huge. And you really have to have a good overlap. And because dry eye has so many different types of dry eye input, it's almost impossible to have one drug that does everything in a general population. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, so, so Ben, would, would you let's
0: talk about etiology of dry eye? Sure. Um, you know, part of the reason why we're having this conversation, especially for the listeners, is because in clinic I've struggled to find where. Uh, where osmolarity fits in right and uh so rather than just you know pushing it off completely to the wayside, I wanted to go to somebody who understands it far better than I do right get a better understanding of how uh from an from an ideology standpoint you see osmolarity and the pathophysiology. And I know you had some slides that you wanted to show. So if anybody yep. wants to see the,
1: the YouTube version of it, we'll have a little bit, but can you speak to a little bit of that? In- and okay. So the first thing I'll start with is something that I'm sure you've heard. Did you know that in one study, up to 86% of dry patients have signs of MGD? I did. Have you heard that? I've heard that too, a lot. Uh, and interestingly, the reference down here is by Dr. Lemp, who again, uh, amazing, amazing doctor and uh, one yep. of my heroes. I was lucky enough to work with him for a long time. Uh, and interestingly, we co-wrote this paper. Uh, I'm the final author on the paper that was cited. There you go. Did I, d- the I didn't know that. I referenced <laughs> this study all the time. Yeah, this is my study. Um, and I did the analysis. I, you know, this is sure. basically from a lot of our 510k data that we did a long time ago. And I'm going
0: to bring this up, particularly for people who may not read a lot of research. The two people you want to pay attention to are the first author and the last author on right. a study, right? Because you you have an incredible amount of uh, input on it. So yeah. I'm so sorry that I didn't even recognize. No, that that's okay. Very um, well
1: known study. <laughs> Tony Braun, Gary Fowkes. you know, yeah, amazing. all of these <laughs> people. You know, yeah, Leslie Cruz is a, a good friend of mine. She does amazing work in, in regenerative medicine. But uh, we really wanted to understand how many people are out there. What is the etiology? That's what we were trying to get at, because. We all understand the importance of etiology in clinical trials, but also in treatment. And we did put it in the abstract. You can see the abstract here. But it's important to note, and people miss this. They glaze over this. It was 86% of these qualified dry eye patients demonstrated signs of MGD. It wasn't of everybody. Mm -hmm. If you actually look at the distribution down here, there's 79 people with clear EDE based on the fact that they had a high meibomian grade, but they didn't have uh, any evidence of aqueous deficiency. The Shermers was high, Right. And then they had mixed people, too, where, you know, you had a high MGD and some evidence of Shermer strips. Mm-hmm. But what you'll find over and over again, and we've published on this extensively, these are all uncorrelated markers, right? In the broad population, these things do not correlate. There was no information from a Sherman strip on whether or not the meibomian gland is injured and vice versa, right? right? And it's kind of, uh, you know, luck of the draw based on who you see in front of you. And there's also day-to-day variation in every single marker, Yeah, right? So clinically, it's a, it's a challenge that I don't... I don't envy the challenge of having to look at somebody at a single point in time and make a very distinct ideological definition. But importantly, from how MGD relates, it's about 60% of the total population that we measure, not 86%. And that changes everything, in my opinion, because MGD is a very important part, but it's not everything. If it's 86%, it seems to be the dominant thing. And this number has taken a life on its own. And this is one of the reasons why still today, even if you treat the MGD, you're not always going to fix the problem. And from a hyperosmolarity standpoint, you'll notice that all of the people here in this study had hyperosmolarity. And this is what Mm -hmm. we found, is that hyperosmolarity is common to a lot of forms, but not everybody has hyperosmolarity who's symptomatic. And it's the same thing with everybody. Everybody who's symptomatic doesn't have staining. How many people Mm -hmm. did you see do not have central corneal staining? Lots of A lot of people, right? So it can't be the the end-all be-all of a definition of the disease. But what I think of osmolarity and fundamentally what it's telling you is that there is a uh, a damage in the homeostatic mechanisms. One of the compensatory mechanisms have failed, whether it's not enough flow or there's too much evaporation. And again, in the molecular mechanisms of evaporation, there's several that people don't talk about, and I'll get into that in a bit. Again, one of my favorite topics about the the epithelium. The the lipids in the mybomian gland are very important. And again, you know, my dad's a pioneer in this. We published a lot of papers on how important lipids are, but they're not the entire story. The epithelium is critical to preventing evaporation, as is the glycocalyx, which helps set up the uh, the surface tension to be able to hold onto water in a challenging environment, right? Um, I think it was a Colin Ceratini, I think uh, he, he put out a great thesis about trying to recreate evaporative barriers with lipid films and couldn't do it, you know, out of Dr. Radke's group. So lipids alone couldn't really hold onto the, couldn't prevent water from evaporating in a lipid film, Mm-hmm. And so the tear film is a very complex structure that isn't just lipids and it isn't just mucins. It's right. this entire very complex thing and it's difficult to mix. You know, I don't know if you've ever played with tears in a pipette, but one time I remember trying to dilute them with water and it crawled up the side of the uh, the pipette. It was completely non-Newtonian behavior. And yeah, Ben, with, I, don't, you know, I don't know that a lot of people play with tears in a pipette. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's valid. That's valid. I tend to do that. That's right. Um, I know, right? You know, taking it back, I, one of my first memories is when I was crying, my dad came at me with a, a little test tube to, like, collect my tears when I was a kid. And he'd be like, don't move. He'd run over <laughs> and he'd grab it. Anyway. Yeah, that happens um, in everybody's that happens house, to everybody. right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that seems to be unique. Um, in any case, moving on. Th- my only point is that all of these clinical things that we look at, staining, uh, symptoms, osmolarity, you know, breakup time, tremors, my bone grating, they're all distinct and they're all uncorrelated and it's really important to understand that these things don't correlate and you should not expect them to correlate right that's so, so true and I think as
0: clinicians the- we expect a plus B equals C and that we're looking for those high probability of correlations across right. things you know this 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 brings up uh, we did uh, we didn't repeat this study but we took all of our patients that were in our dry eye clinic and we tested, the number of meibomian glands yielding liquid secretions. And we found a number lower than Dr. Lemp. We found 78% of our patients. And that kind of speaks to it, right? I mean, right. Not, not necessarily, you can do the study 10 times and the numbers are going to be a little bit different because of your population, right? Um, depending on your end number, right? But 78% for us, which I've always said, well, that's probably a more accurate number because we You looked at the number of meibomian glands and we set a target and a number, but this kind of speaks to it we can't necessarily say a plus B equals C within dry eye because there's so much variability. So I think that's, you know, really, really well said on your part.
1: Yeah. And it's also important to know that, you know, we have much better tools than we did today. You know, this is a 2012 study, right and in that time, the meibomian gland tools have exploded in popularity and utility and we have much more sensitive uh, ways to, to detect it. But as yeah. you know, if you turn up the sensitivity, you're also turning down the specificity. Right. Right. And so again, this is where we talk about osmolarity as a balance. Just because you have to Remind, one or two remind us
0: specificity and sensitivity. So sensitivity. Those are two terms we forget is, about.
1: Yeah. So sensitivity is the percentage of people. Um, so. How many people have the disease? Like a true positive, and specificity is how many normal people basically don't have it, right? Mm -hmm. So if you are, I think I think I did it right, but specificity is how good you are on norms is really the way to think of it. So if you have 100% specificity, you don't tell anybody that's normal that they have the disease, and if you have 100% sensitivity, you're capturing everybody,
0: everybody, Mm -hmm. everybody.
1: You know, if you if you walk in and you say, okay, if you have a breakup time less than 30 seconds you have dry eye disease. Yeah. Well, you're going to get everybody. It's very sensitive, but you're also going to do lots of normals. If you set your breakup time threshold to two seconds, you're going to have a very specific threshold, right? The specificity will be really high. You're only going to get the severe dry eye patients. Yeah. But you're going to miss a whole bunch of mild to moderate dry eye patients. True. So there's always a balance in sensitivity and specificity in any one marker. That's true. And the math gets complicated. The Do's Two report does a really good job of talking about.
0: They outline giving, everything: specificity yeah, and sensitivity, mm-hmm. especially
1: with multiple variables. Yeah. Right, and it all comes down to risk. And the other thing that people don't talk about in terms of sensitivity and specificity, and it's really important, especially when we talk about biomarkers, it's what the doctor thinks. It's all about risk. Every patient's a different individual. They might be having surgery. They might be older. They might have other, uh, you know, conditions that you have to worry about. They might have you know, a a lid trauma. So when we look at these broad definitions of biomarkers, they're guidelines for the doctors to use as they see fit. And people miss that all the time. It's very much about, okay, I feel this patient's more at risk. I'm going to treat. And these biomarkers are a benchmark along the way to help me decide what the best treatment is and, you know, is it working and a way to help coach the patient. All these things are valid uses of biomarkers. Um, What we don't try to use with biomarkers is to say definitively this person has this disease and you must treat with this, you know, we've always shied away from that, even though that's what everybody wants. Yeah. We hear that most commonly, just tell me what to do with the number. What should I give? And yeah, we can give suggestions, but ultimately there are so many different types of doctors that treat dry eye. Laser surgeons are different than ODs that are different than, you know, somebody after cataract surgery. Right. And none of these things are equivalent in how you manage a patient and uh, so forth. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, to be sensitive to time, I think we've got about five or 10 minutes. I can already tell okay. we're going to need to do this again. But walk okay. us through this disease progression and where okay. osmolarity fits into this extremely easy to well and, and well
1: understood. Given our time, I'll stay with what people are familiar with. And, yes. and you know, uh, Professor Braun basically is the author of this. And, uh, you know, you talk about tear hyperosmolarity. Uh, you know, this is, the, uh, this is straight from these too. And the core mechanism of dry eye is to your hyperosmolarity. It's the hallmark of the disease. It damages the ocular surface both directly and by initiating inflammation, right? And it's not hard to understand. You go pour salt in your eye, do it tonight, everybody, see what happens, right? It's not going to be fun. And uh, really, this is what happens. Um, And there's a lot of molecular mechanisms behind it. And if I can take just a little bit of time to show you a little uh, sort of the the concept of hyperosmolarity, really the role of it is that – it, it's a damage to the cornea and the conjunctiva. And that's how I think of it, right? You need to know whether somebody's hyperosmolar because you need to know whether the tear form is toxic fundamentally. Is it damaging the ocular surface or not? Um, it, it's whether or not it's common to all forms of dry eye and how you classify dry eye to me is irrelevant. The hyperosmolar fraction of patients is a unique fraction in your clinic. Not everybody has hyperosmolarity. And the people that don't likely have other types of things that are causing discomfort, other than hyperosmolarity. And you have to identify those as a doctor as well. We know that hyperosmolarity, you know, in vitro, if you add it to cells, the cells start dying. Right? We know that if you add it to cells uh, in a dish, they start producing all kinds of inflammatory mediators, MMP9, TNF alpha, IL1, all go up when you expose cells to hyperosmolarity. They upregulate cell surface markers like HLADR. Uh, you know, Dr. Versura and um, you know, there's been a bunch of great people that have looked at HLADR. In general, and um, it's a it's a powerful marker. It's just on the cells. Um, Again, the 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 tight junctions between the cells start getting compromised. And fundamentally, what you're doing is you're compromising the cells. Um, Hyperosmolarity increases reactive oxygen species quite a bit. You can see here in the controls, it's very low, but then you add salt, and it's off the charts. You can also see in apoptosis markers for Bax and Bcl two, it starts killing the cells. Uh, Dr. Rosenblatt, these great studies were prolonged hyperosmolarity will actually start killing the nerves and will change the nor- nerve morphology, right? This is really important. We start hearing all about, uh, neuropathy. Uh, there there's several studies. I think there was a study out of Michigan a few years ago that, with the diabetics that had, uh, uh, neuropathy and they had very strong signals for very bad dry eye, but they didn't have as high a symptomology, right? I think this is what's happening. This is one of the reasons the disease is complex. The nerves start dying. You don't feel it. Um, I wasn't there, but I heard stories of the transition between soft and hard contact lenses or hard to soft, right? And oxygen permeable. And people that had hard lenses in for so long, you would put a soft lens in, their nerves would start growing back and they were miserable. Oh, give me my old lens. You know, and you should go talk to people about how that happened. They had such bad neuropathy with the, the hard lenses that they didn't feel anything anymore, but they were mm-hmm. doing a lot of damage to their eyes, right? Mm-hmm. And this happens in dry eye a lot. Some of the people that are more mild on the objective biomarker scale actually uh, are miserable.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, they just don't know they're miserable.
1: <laughs> they, yeah, And they like, do something. Um, you know, Dr. Belmonte's done this great work on how osmolarity changes thresholds for different nerve endings. Um, we don't have time to go into all this stuff, but you know, I'll leave you with this. I, I, since it to be time sensitive, osmolarity kills ocular surface cells. You know, um, this is a classic picture. You can see on the left. Uh, this is Dr. Gilbard's work. Left is sort of a, a normal. Everything's hexagonally nice. packed. The cells are happy. As the osmolarity increases in the middle panel, they start to slough off and die. And then, in severe hyperosmolarity, you can see that the corneal cells are actually uh, dying, sloughing off in mass, and exposing underneath the basal cells that are immature. And those immature basal cells haven't yet sprouted a glycocalyx and have a very different ability to hold on to water. Okay? And so, we see this happening on the ocular surface over and over again. Mm-hmm. Hyperosmolarity can independently destroy the ocular surface even without any inflammation uh coming into play not that inflammation isn't important but osmolarity by itself can cause this kind of damage and that's why it's important to address clinically Um, and so i I think i can leave it there i mean you can start going to all these different studies about how hyperosmolarity uh definitively causes dry eye and how you can reverse it Um, but even even just saying that, hyperosmolarity causes dry eye. That doesn't make sense in the context of what we're talking about. Hyperosmolarity by itself is an issue, right? Hyperosmolarity, and what I'm showing you on this paper here, this was a, uh, a model using a co-culture of corneal and conjunctival cells in a dish. There was no immune system, and they just applied high salt by lowering the blink rate, which is very important for computer vision syndrome, as we know. Right. So all they did was lower the blink rate of this mechanical lid wiper, the osmolarity spikes up and you start seeing these really nasty effects on the ocular surface. The lubricin essentially went away. We saw spikes in IL-8, MMP9. The epithelial cells themselves were freaking out. You can see nf B translocation where the cells are, are really unhappy and a huge increase in TLR4. And interestingly, even in this model, they recapitulated the fact that just increasing the osmolarity alone increased uh, staining. You can see in the right panel here how much staining there was when they lowered the blink rate. And you can see that the breakup time dramatically lowered Right. It basically halved. And all they did was lower the blink rate. Now, this is a nature paper. I love this paper because, you know, we don't get a lot of nature medicine papers and dry eye. Right. You go check it out. Um, but this shows that osmolarity alone, hyperosmolarity alone can cause a lot of the clinical sequela that we see in the disease. And, uh, I think it's a causative factor for a lot of people that have hyperosmolarity. And so you got to bring the number down. And yeah. if you treat people, but don't bring the number down, you can still have these toxic effects. Um, and probably a different podcast. We can talk about what to do about it and how to do yeah, it. Yeah, no,
0: I think actually having another another discussion around uh, osmolarity and what we do to kind of bring it down would, would, be, would be really valuable. But, you know, uh, for those of you that are listening and not watching, you're, you're, you're not missing uh, a, a lot. There's really cool pictures here. You can go over to the YouTube channel and see them. Um, but what what we 're showing here is he 's talking about the toxic effect, you know showing images of the cornea as they 're degrading with higher amounts of osmolarity, particularly at the cellular level and he 's showing some images of corneal nerves. I presume that was on confocal microscopy, showing that the the nerves uh, are degradating, and uh, so this just kind of goes to show that. Um, You know, I've taken a step back from osmolarity at seasons in my practice, but it just kind of goes to show that if I'm doing all of the things to help my dry eye patients, but yet their osmolarity isn't improving, I think is the point that you're making. um, I may be making the patient feel better in some ways, uh, which we know we can do with a lot of different treatments. But if we're not improving that overall tier quality as measured by osmolarity, this damaging or degradating effect of the dry eye we'll still could continue and uh, w- will get worse. And I think that's you know kind of a, a a recap of what you're saying here with uh, uh, some eloquent studies uh, you know if you are interested in seeing all the references again, he's got them on all of the slides. you can reference them on on the YouTube version of this podcast. Anything uh, in closing there i mean that this is a brilliant work. I think you are bringing a perspective to osmolarity that we have missed in the eye care industry by and large, you know, we're looking for it as a, as a measure to say, uh, here's one test that tells us whether you have dry eye. And I don't think that's what you're saying. Uh, I think there's, it's multifactorial, but uh, you know, I think very eloquently put.
1: Yeah. I think you summarized it really, really well. Um, and thank you for that. I, I tend to speak really quickly and, you know, I could go on for hours about these things. Obviously I'm passionate about it and studied it a lot
0: Yeah,
1: you know, hyperosmolarity is one of the major stresses in the body. You know, you have heat, you have hyperosmolarity, you have pH, you have a variety of these things, um, you know, pathogens and so forth. But it's definitely a stress, and uh, cells are really unhappy uh, when that stress is present. You got to get rid of it.
0: You know, know, my definition from of, of dry eye disease that has come, you know, is constantly evolving because I can't stay true to all the definitions in the literature is that dry eye disease is when the ocular surface system can no longer protect itself against desiccating stress. And I think within my definition, one way I would know that desiccating stress is occurring to the ocular environment is that the tear osmolarity is creeping up. That means that the ocular surface desiccating stress is is level, Particularly the study you showed about the, the blink rate and making people blink more poorly, right? That's evidence that that's a desiccating, stressful environment. And we can see that happening clinically by osmolarity starting to yeah. creep up. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: And become unstable. Don't yeah. forget an osmolarity, like any biomarker, really, it, it's not just the uh, absolute number. It's the difference between the two eyes. Yeah. Um, we've done, we've published several papers on that. It's an important thing to understand because it's a loss of homeostasis to your point. Yeah. The eye goes from stable and low to chaotic. Yeah. And it's one of the challenges in diagnosing dry eye, um, and certainly understanding it. Hyperosmolarity is not the perfect marker, but it's one of the best we have in trying to understand that. And it's important to understand how to use it too. That's another whole discussion we can have. Yeah. Um, um, Well,
0: I sure appreciate you uh, taking part in in, in being on the podcast. And thank you for joining us for this episode. Make sure to like and subscribe. And we'll, uh, we'll connect with you next time on the Optometric Insights Show.
1: Really appreciate the time. Thank you.